Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the fourth in this series of special episodes. This one is brought to you by Dr. Steve Holmes and Dr. Anthony Cunliffe. Hello, I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in Shepton Mallet in Somerset and work quite a bit with the respiratory world, with the British Thoracic Society, United Kingdom Lung Cancer Coalition, and also with the main respiratory charities, the British Lung Foundation and Asthma UK. And it's a great pleasure to be joined today by Anthony Cunliffe. Um, I probably will hand over in a second just to ask Anthony to introduce himself. This is one of our new podcasts, which come to you as an introduction to the Chronic Conditions Month in 2021, which will be during the month of May and will include a string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address some of the issues that are really important in primary care and can challenge us both in diagnosis and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has changed things around a little bit. Today in this podcast, we're going to talk about living with cancer and some of the issues associated with that in terms of long-term conditions, and Anthony, could you just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and, and where you're working and why primary care is so important? Of course, Steve. Thank you. So I'm Dr. Anthony Cunliffe. I'm a GP myself also in South London. Um, I'm the Joint Clinical Director of the South East London Cancer Alliance. And I work with Macmillan Cancer Support. I'm the National Lead GP Advisor with Macmillan Cancer Support. And it's really exciting today to be here to talk about um, essentially cancer as a long-term condition and the importance of our role in primary care as primary care teams in how we can support people living with cancer. Um, you know, we've seen a significant change in the cancer landscape over the last, you know, five, ten years with lots more people now being diagnosed with cancer, um, which is daunting, of course, but fortunately um, there's also been a significant uh, improvement in the people being diagnosed earlier and uh, the treatments people receive. So we're seeing people live a lot longer with cancer with the um, the average diagnosis, uh, the average um, 
survival after diagnosis now being over 10 years. Uh, so over 50% uh, living 10 years or longer after a cancer diagnosis, which of course means that we as, as primary care physicians and primary care teams have a lot more people on our lists who have been living for a significant amount of time after a cancer diagnosis. And I suspect as general practitioners, we're starting to see that sort of theme coming through now when we observe our patients coming through. And that sort of information is hidden in the background on the computer. It doesn't always stand out every time. And that might be something for people listening in to just reflect on how do I make sure that I have an alert that can remind me of a patient who might have had a cancer some years ago, because that can always be relevant when they represent. Absolutely, Steve. I think that's very important. And some of the work we do at Macmillan with primary care is trying to ensure that um, coding around cancer and specifically around treatments for cancer is accurate within our systems in primary care. Because as you say, you know, we have so much information on our systems and it's hard for it all to be um, prominent. But understanding whether somebody's had a cancer diagnosis and, and when that was, and very importantly, what treatment they had and, you know, Potentially, if it was radiotherapy, what part of the body that treatment affected is going to be really important as people present with, with symptoms and signs that potentially could be, you know, could have been caused by the previous cancer treatment or as a result of the previous cancer diagnosis. But unless it's obvious to us when we're looking at our screens, you know, we're not going to think about that. So, so a really good alert. And you mentioned Macmillan a couple of times, and I think we've got very familiar with the term Macmillan nurse, the Macmillan charity, but I, I'm not sure how many of us actually know exactly what Macmillan is. Could you just give us a, an outline about the charity? Absolutely. And, you know, I think there are some misunderstandings about our organisational priorities at Macmillan Cancer Support. But essentially, it's right there in the title. You know, we're called Macmillan Cancer Support because we are a cancer support charity. So, uh, and I could talk all day about the different things we do because we're, we're a large organisation and we have lots of different um, work streams that we focus on. But essentially, we are there for people, um, everyone uh, who is affected by cancer, and particularly people living with cancer, right from that point of diagnosis through their cancer journey. So, um, to help them with all the stresses uh, or confusion uh, that might happen around that time of diagnosis, to support them through as they go through acute treatment, um, to, to be there for them when they're recovering from treatment. And then beyond that, which obviously is different for everyone because everyone's experience of cancer is unique. So some people will recover well from cancer. Some people may recover from the cancer itself, but then be you know left living with some of the long-term consequences of, of the cancer or the treatment they receive for its cancer. Some people, of course, have uh, live with for a long time with cancer and undergo multiple courses of of treatment for that cancer and we often refer to that as treatable but not curable cancer and then of course some people uh, will move it everybody will move into the end of life phase at some point whether that's you know direct, directly related to the cancer or not but of course for some people depending on when what cancer they're diagnosed with and what stage that cancer is diagnosed at uh, you know the 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 time between which they are diagnosed and move into the end of life phase obviously varies significantly for lots of people, but a lot of people see us as an end-of-life charity, but that is just part of what we do. So, so a much wider thing. And and funding for uh, Macmillan, is that is that mainly NHS, or does the government give you lots of money, or is, how, how does that no, Macmillan fund we're it? Almost, yes, apologies for uh, interrupting there. We're almost solely uh, funded by the public. So I, I think the figure is 99% of our funding comes directly from the public, 
you know, through direct um, donations, through legacy donations, through uh, fundraising activities. Um, so we are completely reliant on the public to to provide the services that we provide. Right. So important for us as healthcare professionals to to recognise that and to encourage support still for for the the charity. Um, Incredibly. Let's just think about living with cancer. And you've mentioned a couple of areas. One is living with a cancer that you have a good outcome from initially, but you might be left with some of the effects of treatment. How can we individualise, how can we personalise care for people in in primary care and in in community care for these people moving forwards? Because often they're not followed up reliably by our secondary care colleagues all the time. Um, And it does come back to us to try to provide that holistic care. What sort of tips have you got for us? Again, I could talk for hours on this one, Steve. So um, I'm not sure I would say secondary care don't reliably follow them up, but it's just that everybody's follow-up uh, journey is is different. And uh, as part of the NHS long-term plan, we uh, are seeing more and more people uh, uh, undergoing what we call stratified follow-up. So some people will remain under regular, uh, regular follow-up uh, with secondary care for various reasons, that, whether that's because of the diagnosis or the treatment they've received or because of their ability to self-manage. But many more people are now being stratified to not regular follow-up. So they may have their regular tests in secondary care, but uh, they will be uh, empowered to self-manage. And then a lot of that responsibility is handed over to primary community care. And I think, you know, we are we have all the skills in primary in our primary care teams with GPs, nurses, social prescribers, and all our support staff to um, support people to um, to deliver truly personalized care to people. So give them the opportunity to have good quality conversations so they can identify their, their needs and then either help meet those needs directly or signpost them to another individual or another service that can help them meet those needs. And then for some people, that may be a, a one-off, but some people may need that as a, you know, a recurrent cycle to as they represent with, with other consequences or, or changing needs. And just thinking through um, um, what I'm thinking about is the person who is coming in, coming to see one of us who's just been given a diagnosis of cancer, that can have a major impact on their life and their family's lives and their friends around them. And often that is done very well by our specialist colleagues when it's made. Sometimes it's it's us who's making that. Have you got any tips from the work that you're doing that might help us to feel more comfortable talking about these sort of issues and also providing our patients with the sort of information that's important to them, relevant and helps them to move forwards? Yes. Um, So we do hope most people have a good experience of uh, receiving a cancer diagnosis in secondary care. But, you know, for a lot of people, the primary care physician or teams will know them very well and they'll have a good experience with them. So just being given that opportunity to have that discussion with your primary care physician is important. And going forward from April, we're seeing a change in the COF uh, Cancer Care Review to introduce um, a... um, an essential element around that time of diagnosis. So within three months, but closest, closest, as close to the time of diagnosis as possible for primary care to reach out, offer that discussion, that good quality conversation and signpost to what support is available. Um, now that may be locally, but you know, Macmillan Cancer Support have direct services that anybody can access across the UK. So even if we just signpost people to Macmillan, if we're feeling, you know, as GPs, sometimes we're a little bit, um, 
concerned about starting conversations or uh, if we're not sure how we might then be able to help any needs that arise. And certainly just being signposting people to Macmillan's direct services who can help with any problems. They can have discussions about medical problems, but also non-medical things like finance, mortgage, work, psychological problems can all be um, helped through the Macmillan Direct Services. So even if that's something we can do, it certainly could potentially help all our patients. So, so don't forget about referring to other people. I think the other thing that's always struck me over the years is that although we only have 10, 12 minutes in a consultation, often when a patient comes to see us, they've been thinking through what they might want to say and what they might want to get out of it. And they will often gain an awful lot from a 10, 12 minute conversation from someone, they, as you mentioned, that they know well. And I guess that probably links in with that concept of them trusting us over years and being able to ask us the right questions can help them to move on and know where they can get reliable support and help when things uh, progress. I don't, I don't know if you, you find that as a common thing. I mean, absolutely. And to me, that's why we in primary care are the ideal people to, to deliver truly personalised care, because we will often know many things about a patient or about the family or about the, you know, the living situation that, that people in secondary care may not know. And um, perhaps there's nothing that can really replace that relationship. Um, you know, we can use templates to guide us through a, a good review or we can... Um, you know, send out letters in advance, which is really good practice, or really ask a patient to prepare for an appointment, especially a specific cancer care review. But often it's that um, that good relationship, that ability to be, you know, to speak freely with a medical professional that can that can help a patient have that really good quality conversation where the needs can be identified. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I, and I, if I move us on to thinking about people who's um, cancer might be giving more problems and progressing, we often have to start to think about um, other forms of discussion in primary care. And I think a lot of us do feel quite difficult and uncomfortable when we get into those sort of discussions. Uh, again, getting extra support in is very helpful. But have you got any tips on how we can approach that sort of scenario? Yes. Well, I think I see communication skills as exactly what it says on the tin. It's a skill. And I think communication skills, like all other skills, are ones that need to be um, practiced and that we perhaps need recurrent training on. So we wouldn't continue to do a, um, say, a, a physical intervention if we didn't feel confident and we weren't up to date. And I feel really strongly that that's the same for communication skills. And I'm not sure we generally approach it that way. But there are some fantastic communication skills courses out there. Uh, we have one in Macmillan called Courageous Conversations, which is it simply looks at how you can have a good quality conversation, perhaps delivering difficult news or handling a difficult um, um, subject with a patient. Um, and uh, it can be daunting. And unfortunately, maybe we often avoid having them because it is daunting and, you know, it's, it can be difficult but I think the key to me is practice um, and, uh, yeah, regularly training, regularly having those, um, practicing those skills and training in those skills, because to me, that's the key to breaking down that fear we have inside us and it becoming just part of, because I think what we do in primary care is we deal with uncertainty incredibly well all the time. You know, we, we, we communicate incredibly well for most of the time. And that's why, you know, we're in that 
ideal position to have these conversations with people. So I would say to people, see it more as, your, as, as that a normal part of our day-to-day practice because the more we do it, the more natural it will feel when, when, it's, needed, when, when it's needed to be done. And not to put you on the spot, but one of the common things I hear from colleagues again uh, and difficulties are patients saying, how long have I got? Now, I deal a lot with people with very significant COPD or heart failure where the, the trajectory is a little less reliable. But even so, the trajectory in cancer is not particularly reliable all the time. Have you got any tips on how clinicians should sort of cope with that sort of question from the patient or the the the, the relatives who are who are asking it? Um, it's a really difficult one, that isn't it, Steve? As you say, prognosis is incredibly difficult. Sometimes we'll we'll be given a steer by our secondary care colleagues, or perhaps you know end of life colleagues if they're involved regarding prognosis. But it can be difficult, and we know that patients prove us wrong all the time when we when we talk about prognosis. I guess the important thing with this and with all advanced care planning discussions is to start with what it what matters to the patient, what is important to the patient, and um, you know, because, you know, that's the crux. It's trying to get a patient to identify what's important to them, what matters to them, either to uh, do at that time, to address at that time, you know, hopes they might have, fears they might have. Um, and I think if you always go back to, you know, what matters to the patient and getting the patient to really focus on what matters to them, it will make all those conversations much easier. I, I agree. And I think one of the things I've observed over time is that reflection, if you reflect the question back to the person involved and say, how do you think you've been getting on over the last few months? How, how are you now compared to perhaps three weeks, six weeks ago? They often give you a very clear idea why they're asking that question and what they think is happening to them. So I, so I think that's a u- very useful way of being able to understand both their thoughts and also how they feel it's going as, as a useful way forwards. But but I agree, I think it's always challenging in that sort of situation. Hopefully we get more used to it as time goes on. Um, can I ask a little bit about prevalences and things? Because certainly in the area that I know a little bit more about lung cancer, um, we've been trying to do quite a lot to improve the early diagnosis, and we've been doing quite a lot to improve the early accurate treatment of people with uh, lung cancer to improve outcomes. Um, And I know there's a lot of other cancers where probably we're trying to do the same. How are we comparing with Europe? How are we doing um, in terms of improving the quality of both early diagnosis and um, longer term treatments? Well, as regards early diagnosis, obviously it's very topical at the moment because we were making significant progress. We'd, you know, over the last you know, 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of work to try and drive earlier diagnosis of cancer because we were aware that some of our poor outcomes compared to the rest of Europe were because people were getting diagnosed at a later stage. So there's been a lot of focus on how we can get people diagnosed earlier. You know, one, one thing being the introduction of the urgent suspected cancer referral pathway, obviously many years ago now, and we were making significant headway as you mentioned, lung was uh, is a is a difficult cancer to diagnose early, and it one it's certainly one of the tumors that is more challenging to really shift that. Um, uh, most people being diagnosed at a late stage to an early stage. Now, I guess the reason it's so topical at the moment is because of the the COVID pandemic, 
And unfortunately, we saw certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, a significant drop off in the number of urgent suspected cancer referrals that were coming through. It did recover and it's recovered from most tumours, but we are still seeing a couple of um, tumour pathways, um, lung being one of the mo most significantly hit ones that are still lingering around 60% of pre-pandemic levels of urgent suspected cancer referrals. And so some of all some of that work that's been going on over the last few years, um, you know, we, it has been knocked back a little bit and we're going to have to refocus and think about how we can capitalise on all that work's done and what also we might need to do differently, particularly with lung, because certainly over the last year, we've all been faced with that challenge of um, a pandemic that presents with similar symptoms to what lung cancer might present with. And for primary care to really uh, distinguish between the two um, has been a real challenge that nobody can underestimate and a challenge that isn't you know, imminently, imminently going to go away. No, and, and I think one of the issues around that is that people are having to do a lot more um, telephone triage or video triage without actually being face-to-face. -face. And again, it's probably worthwhile just reflecting on those sort of red flag symptoms that are still the same red flag symptoms during COVID as they were before. And Absolutely. If somebody's been sorry, if somebody's been coughing for three weeks, let's get them a chest X-ray. Irrelevant of whether you know we think they may have had COVID or not. Um, yeah, virtual consultations are certainly going to have hit um, some pathways, particularly like the lung pathway, perhaps the um, uh, pathways to, to urological cancers, and we're going to have to kind of um, pause and reboot really about the work that we're going to going to need to do in this area and really get the message out there to primary care that although some of these common presentations seem easy to manage virtually, let's just keep checking ourselves, let's just keep safety netting, let's keep you know looking back in the notes, has this person already you know, been treated for a, a respiratory symptom recently? You know, Do lots more chest x-rays, I think, um, would be one, one really clear message um, because, um, and don't hesitate to refer, that would be another message. And I, and I think if I spoke to my radiography, radiology colleagues at the moment, they would also be just reminding us that if it sounds like lung cancer and the chest X-ray is normal, still refer in for review because about 20%, 25% of um, lung cancers will not be picked up on that initial chest X-ray, but may well be picked up on, on CT scanning. Absolutely. Do chest X-rays really, really early but don't be reassured by a normal chest X-ray or a normally reported chest X-ray because um, if your uh, patient has ongoing symptoms, because as you say, a significant number of people when they are diagnosed with cancer will have a normally reported chest X-ray. So get a CT if you can or send them on an urgent suspected cancer referral pathway. The GP hunch we know from studies is incredibly powerful and has a, a positive predictive value of higher than you know, any symptom or sign. So really trust in your hunch if you're concerned. Very, very positive. Keep keep hunching, whatever that might. I don't think that's the right Absolutely. phrase. Um, I mean, I, I repeatedly said that in primary care, we are the key to um, achieving the national, uh, the NHS uh, target of, of getting, you know, 75% of people diagnosed at can with cancers at stage one and two, we are the key. You know, we are that we can, we are the ones that can investigate earlier, and we are fantastic diagnosticians in primary care. So trust your hunch. Use all the tests that we have. Um, you know that we have access to, like X-rays and blood tests. And if you ever really feel 
you know, have that hunch and feel concerned that somebody might have a cancer, act on it. I'd agree with that. And I think two of the things I've heard recently, one is that those that are diagnosed first in primary care have a much better outcome than those that are diagnosed in an A&E department or much later on. So do keep using that hunch. And I think the, the second thing along with that, just to reinforce positivity, is we're actually doing a lot better than we used to. A lot of our survivorship type outcomes are much better now. Can I just ask finally about um, some of the longer treatments that are available? So radiotherapy and some of the treatments that are used with with cancer, um, curative cancer attempts are often damaging to the body in other ways. Do you have any sort of key tips that you bear in mind when you're seeing people in your clinic to try and distinguish and pull out those sort of, is it potentially the cancer back? Is it something else? Or is this a radiotherapy scarring type problem or scar tissue from surgery? Yeah, so as you said, there are multiple long-term consequences of treatment that can significantly affect somebody's quality of life. So as we said earlier, it's really important to know that somebody had a diagnosis and what treatment they received. You know, so if, if somebody's received surgery or radiotherapy to the abdomen or pelvis at all, we need to be, you know, acutely aware that they may present with bowel or um, uh, bowel problems, urinary problems, um, problems with sexual function at a, at a later date. And we, we might manage them differently because they may be related to a previous cancer treatment. So it's really important for us to be aware. And I think my message for primary care is always, we don't need to know in detail how to manage a lot of these problems. It's about awareness. So being aware of some of the high level problems something people can receive from the different cancer treatments, understanding what we can manage in primary care, because a lot of the time, you know, if it's for, I don't know, uh, sexual, sexual function problems after treatment for prostate cancer or some peripheral neuropathies after chemotherapy, often we'll manage them as we would manage, you know, those conditions, whatever the cause was. But there are some situations, particularly maybe around urinary problems or bowel dysfunction after radiotherapy and surgery that we might at a much earlier stage want to get specialist support on. And Macmillan Cancer Support with the RCGP produced a really great toolkit. It's called the Consequences of Cancer Toolkit very easy to find via Google. And there are some really great one pages on there for GPs because that's all we need to know. We don't need to know, you know, we don't need to be experts in this area. We just need to be aware, um, know what we can do. And sometimes that will be simple things like getting people a radar key or a just-in-case card if they have bowel urgency. It might be the best thing you can do for a patient to do something as simple as that. So just an awareness, an awareness of what we can do, but an awareness of our limitations in those situations as well. And can I just ask, uh, I'm a RCGP member, um, I know a lot of us are, but not all people in primary care are members. Is that consequences of cancer available free from the RCGP or are there other sources that, that, that other people can use if they're not members? That's free for everyone, so it's accessible to everyone. So another thing for you to have a look at after you've listened to this is type it in, have a look, RCGP website, Macmillan should be really valuable. Anthony, before I close, is there anything else you wanted to say just before we round things up? I think what I'd end with is that, you know, I really strongly believe that to deliver good quality personalised care to people living with cancer, 
you know, obviously the the treatment team at the hospital are really important, but the primary care team are essential in delivering that, whether it be the GP, the nurse, the social prescriber, absolutely. We've produced a lot of resources on and they're on our Macmillan website for um, on how social prescribers can support people living with cancer. Um, and a lot of the new roles that are coming into primary care, care as well, the pharmacists, you know, the, the other AHPs that are coming in, you know, as teams, we can deliver really good quality personalized care from around that time of diagnosis, but where you are beyond. So I think it's about remembering that, you know, cancer, you know, can be for many people a long-term condition like the other long-term conditions we manage. And we as teams are skilled and equipped to manage that. And so we shouldn't shy away from it just because it's cancer. And I would suggest everybody goes to the Macmillan GP website. It's just www.macmillan.org.uk forward slash GP. And they'll be able to see all our primary care resources there. That sounds really fantastic. I think that the things that are pulling in my mind at the moment are really important for us to keep up to speed in supporting our patients in this sort of environment. I'm very impressed by how similar a lot of the discussions and symptom control and support requirements are for people with cancer as they are for people with heart failure, with COPD, with uh, dementia and other long-term conditions. And we are doing well in primary care. We can do better. We still have to concentrate. We have to use our clinical acumen, but we are making a difference. So thank you, Anthony. Really brilliant. And I hope that I hope that in the future you'll be able to listen to a few more of these podcasts and you'll join us for the Chronic Conditions Month in May 2021, which you can sign up to at chronicconditions.co.uk. Very simple. Enjoy the rest of your day.